All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today, I'm joined by Lisa Marie Hunt, who is a type of guest we've never had on before, which I'm pretty excited about. We've had on people in religious life, uh, especially priests, and we've had on lots of lay people, but we've never had, well, and Lisa is a lay person, but a special type of lay person, we've never had a consecrated virgin on the show. So Lisa Marie, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Hello, excited to be here. I'm super excited to have you here. You obviously attend our parish, so you know me and my family and have gotten together with us a lot. Um, and in the process of doing that, I've learned more about what it's like to be a consecrated virgin and what that vocation is all about. And I'm really excited for my listeners to learn the same because I think a lot of people, and I speak at least for myself here, uh, even just as of you know a year or two ago, to me, there were two types of vocations in the church. There were religious vocations and there were you know uh, vocations to marriage and family life, essentially. Um, and of course, religious vocations, not everyone's a priest, right? But that's those are the two kind of big buckets. Um, but your path is something very different from both of those. Um, and in just the short time that we've gotten to know you, I've seen what a blessing it is for the church. And I'm really excited to dive into all of that. So um, let me just do this. Let's introduce you very quickly by way of a brief bio. And then I want to hear a two-minute summary about your journey to the Catholic Church because you, like myself, did not grow up Catholic. Yes. Yep. So um, you graduated from San Diego State University. You became Catholic in college, right? Yep. And and we'll we'll talk more about that. Uh, and now you are a high school math teacher, and most specifically at a public high school. So you're not teaching in a Catholic school. You're not uh, you're not in a cloister. You're not uh, in a part of society exercising the Benedict option where you're shut off from the secular world. You are in the midst of the secular world, uh, in the trenches, I think, in public high school. It's got to be a, a challenging place. And I know where you teach, and it's in a, um, it's in a, uh, a high school with um, a lot of low-income students with challenging family backgrounds. Um, and so you're, uh, you're quite literally taking the gospel to those people, and that's really neat. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for being here. Let's talk now about your journey to the Catholic Church. How did you become Catholic? Yeah, so I grew up in a family that is just a really amazing family that loves each other very much, but has no real spiritual background. Uh, both my parents have had negative experiences of religion uh, from their childhood. When I was five, I moved into this small town called Temecula, which is no longer small. Um, and it was actually, I grew, moved in across the street from a devout Catholic family who had five kids, one of whom was my age. And the lanes just really took me in. And so I got to see the gospel lived very, um, joyfully, which really uh, from a young age drew me into the idea of faith. But I also knew I had to follow my parents. So I did not, uh, I decided I had to wait till I was in college. However, by the time I was ready to go to college, I had lived the goody two-shoes life, as many would say, and I was ready to kind of break away from that when I got to college. Uh, got to college and by the grace of God was afraid of all things that did not, that might have led me down the wrong path. And so uh, I actually found a non-nominational group called InVarsity that was a mix of Catholics and Protestants and got to see them pray together and grow together. And it helped me to see that ecumenical idea before I knew that that was important um, of what prayer was like. Um, that next year, I was baptized in a quote-unquote non-denominational college church. And that was at the prompting of the mom of the Catholic family that had really helped raise me. And she just said that stop worrying about which church is the true church and be baptized. Uh, it's the same baptism. So I was baptized in September of that year. And by the next year I was in RCIA and um, I started with the prayer of, I just want to learn about this 
and I am ready. I don't believe that this is your church. I don't know if this is your church. If it is, you better show me. And by December of that year, I was praying, Lord, I think this is your church. So if it's not, you better show me quickly. And um, first communion confirmation that may. So within a year and a half of being baptized, I was Catholic. I say that it is the catechism and being able to find answers to my questions that made me Catholic, but it's the Eucharist that has kept me Catholic. That's um, yeah, that's beautiful. I totally agree with you as well. I I think uh, when I Last year, I had Meg Hunter-Kilmer on, and she was talking about um, recent scandals in the church, not just 2002, but more recently, you know, 2018, the uh, Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report and all of that. Um, and she made a really good point, which was just that the, I think it was the weekend all of that stuff broke, the gospel reading for that Sunday was um, when, when uh, Jesus asks if the disciples will also leave given these hard words that he's just given them in John chapter six. And Peter says, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Meg was making the same point that we can't leave the Eucharist, right? That's why, that's why we're here. That's why we stay. Um, but I also like your point about the catechism. The catechism played a formative role in Sally and I coming into the church as well, because so much of what we had heard about the church from our Protestant backgrounds was just distorted. Not true. Uh, didn't have the full context or intellectual foundation um, that it needed to, for it to make sense and all sort of cohere. And the catechism, um, well, you know, the catechism is not like a total encapsulation of all of the church's rich um, teaching and history. Uh, does a really darn good job at like consolidating all that into twelve hundred pages or so. And so, as we were reading through, it was really helpful for us to see see it all laid out. Um, well, that's that's a beautiful story. Let's talk now about you being a consecrated virgin. So I want to hear about your, your vocational uh, discernment towards consecrated virginity. But let's back up first before we even do that and talk about what consecrated virginity even is. So you were saying earlier that you didn't even really know much about it. I was in the same boat. So I was, had already discerned religious life before I even knew what consecrated virginity was. Um, and so consecrated virginity, to me at the root of it is that I am a bride of Christ and that that is the thing that kind of ties all consecrated virgins together is that we are a bride of Christ and just the beautiful gift of that. A uh, consecrated virgin lives in the world, so we don't wear a habit. There's nothing that makes me stand out as being different than my other coworkers, than the people that I meet on the street. Um, so the only thing that really changed physically about my life from the day before I was consecrated to the day after is that now I wear a wedding ring. But other than that, I look very much like the rest of the people in the world. Consecrated virgins are dedicated to service of the church. But again, that could look very, very different. So that's one of the things about consecrated virginity is that it's very individual to the person. And so that might look like being very active in your parish. It might look like praying for the people of the church. You just never know, depending on uh, the consecrated virgin's charisms. You also are really dedicated in accessory prayer. And then uh, commonality of consecrated virgins is Eucharistic devotion. Um, one of the things that, you know, just continuing to prepare again for this and the beauty of the vocation is that consecrated virginity actually is was around before religious life. So it was actually from the early church. There were consecrated virgins, St. Agnes, St. Agatha, St. Cecilia, and St. Lucy were all consecrated virgins. And then religious orders began, except for consecrated virginity kind of fell away and it was renewed uh, after Vatican II. So the there was a new rite of consecration that came after Vatican II. And it's actually, we're going to be celebrating the 50th anniversary of the renewal of that rite 
this coming weekend. Yeah, and you had just told me that before we hit record here. So our our timing is is neat because so this the, this weekend is in like we're recording this on May 29th. So May 31st is the the 50 year anniversary. Yes. Great. I think I'm I'll be releasing this uh, just after the 50th anniversary. So but yeah, still neat timing nonetheless. Um so when you say uh it it predates religious life, obviously there were there were there was the priesthood before that which was instituted directly by Christ. Um, but I've even heard stories about, um, consecrated virginity of some sort existing in Judaism before Christianity. I have not, if that is true, I do not know yeah. what that part of it. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's speculation, um, Benedict, uh, the 16th, at least in his, um, work on Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the trilogy seems to sort of undercut this hypothesis, but there's some speculation that Mary herself, the mother of God was a consecrated virgin in the temple. Um, and some have, have used that to lend credence to the argument, arguments for her perpetual virginity. But um, it's an interesting hypothesis nonetheless. I mean, the, the idea has existed uh, for a long time in Judaism and in Christianity of women setting aside themselves for God. Um, and so the fact that, that this is still a thing and the fact that the Vatican, Second Vatican Council kind of revived this idea is especially beautiful. And it's been really beautiful to see because even from my initial time of starting to discern in 2014 where I'd never heard of it before that just how much it's grown and how much more well-known it is um, to be a part of that too to see how the Lord is using this within the church is so beautiful well let's talk a little bit about the discernment that you had towards this so once you figured out that consecrated virginity was a thing uh, there's obviously a discernment process that has to go along with that and I think discernment is something very intimidating to many people myself included and I've said before on the podcast that it's a good thing I was married before I was Catholic because I didn't have to go through this whole discernment process. In fact, before I was Catholic, I, I, I thought I might want to be a pastor, Protestant pastor. I was looking at uh, seminaries even, and my, my thought process had gone that far. Um, and of course, there's no mutual uh, exclusiveness between being married and having kids and being a pastor in a Protestant church. Uh, there is in the Catholic church. So when I became Catholic, in that sense, the die was already cast, and I didn't have to go through this process. But it's a daunting one for sure. Because uh, you're not just you're not just thinking about your future in the sense that of, that people choose a job. You're thinking about your permanent vocation in a way that is irrevocable. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, and so you've taken a vow of celibacy. So I didn't actually take a vow. So I made a promise. But the uh, consecrated virgins are consecrated by the bishop, not taking a vow. Okay. So we show up freely, but it's actually the bishop that is making doing the act so he's the one who is consecrating us got it so, so it's not a solemn vow it's a it's a promise mm -hmm. okay but you but it's still something that is not like the the end of that is not that it's revocable right i mean you don't make a promise that you're like yes. temporarily yes. celibate and it's actually even more is that because in a vow you're coming so if to it and you are like so when you get married the priest is there and the priest is um, the priest is witnessing the couple make the vow to each other. Where in as a consecrated virgin, because the bishop is the one consecrating, there's actually like no annulment, quote unquote, annulment or anything for a consecrated virgin. Wow. Okay. So yeah, yeah. So the, I mean, the the permanence is still there, mm -hmm. uh, even if the sort of ontology of the act is not identical. And then same with marriage, obviously. I mean, marriage vows are vows, and uh, I've married Sally, and that's permanent, and I can't change, up, change my mind now. So, um, I mean, discernment's a scary thing in that sense because it's not just choosing a job. It's not, let's try this out and see if it works. Uh, it's about choosing a permanent vocation. 
Um, and so you've written a book about this called The Moment Is Now. Do more than just survive your single years. Practical tips to live them for God's glory. Uh, I've read through it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. There's some funny stories as well. Uh, I particularly like the opening where you talk about um, David Koch's American Idol performance, where he sang Time of My Life. And I have to confess that when he sang that song, I was I was a big David Cook fan for a while. Uh, I was a little bit of an idol groupie for a few years in like probably early high school. Uh, and uh, I, I love that song. I definitely had that on my iPod, would play it frequently. So I was I was resonating with your your story there. Um, <laughs> but let's talk a little bit more about your discernment process. Um, what would you how, how would you describe that? Yeah, so discernment for me was really hard. Uh, so I didn't actually come to the vocation, even knowing what consecrated virginity was until, I was until right before I turned 30. So I had become Catholic at 20 and I didn't find consecrated virginity until I was 30. So that means 10 years of really not knowing what God was calling me to and really seeking it. So I had a very big idea in my head that I was going to go to college. I was going to meet my spouse and I was going to be married after, right after. Um, I even had a friend say to me something about teaching five years in. And I was like, I'm not going to be teaching five years in. I'm going to be married with kids and be stay-at-home mom at that time. So I had a very clear idea. I'd written my story uh, and God kept pushing it back and back. So I also, though, from very early on in my Catholic life, knew the right Catholic things to say. I've kind of have unfortunately lived that a lot is that I know the right things to do and um, I know how to be on the right path. And so I would tell people like I'm open to religious life. But in my head, it was kind of like, yeah, if I say the right Catholic things, then that means I'm discerning. And so I spent a lot of my early 20s saying those right things to saying I'm open to whatever God wants for me but in my head I wanted marriage and so it was I started meeting with the spiritual director Father Martin uh, when I was probably 25 26 and I, I said the right Catholic things to him and he responded back with well what orders have you visited and I was like I've that's like, if you really are discerning, like you don't go visit a convent until after you're like, sure, that's what God's calling you to. Uh, and I learned, so that was just such a great moment for me is that I realized like, no, we need to be encountering people of all vocations. And I think that even, or especially in this time, we're not meeting people of different vocations beside diocesan priest. Maybe if you're lucky, you have religious priests around you, but many people don't ever inter interact with religious sisters, with nuns. They don't even know the difference between a religious sister and a nun. Um, and so we're not exposed to all these different vocations. So I had to be very intentional. It felt very overwhelming. I actually didn't tell anyone in my life um, with the exception of my roommates that I was going to visit the convents once I did. So I went and visited the Dominicans in Nashville and then the Carmelites in Alhambra. And before that, I really did not understand. I felt like God was force people into religious life, I guess. Like for me, it seemed like this would be a lesser of, of the vocation that I wanted. And I went and I just was so amazed by the beauty of the religious sisters and to just see their joy and to see how uniquely they were themselves and that they weren't these cookie cutter shapes, but that they were themselves and more beautifully. Like you just see the joy and the love that they had for Jesus. Uh, the hardest part of that discernment process though, was that I went there and then I did not feel called to it. And so I came back out of that feeling like marriage isn't for me because no man's coming and religious life 
is not for me. And I just don't know what that means. So I sat in that place for about three years. Uh, I also am very blessed by a lot of friends. And so by that time, I had been in eight weddings um, and I had six godchildren. And I was just really kind of like all my friends' lives were moving on and I was the oldest of them and mine just seemed to be so stagnant. And so things uh, happened. I couldn't meet with Father Martin anymore just because of our schedule. So I went back to my original, the priest that was there in the beginning when I was in college, Father Anthony, and he, I met with him and the very first meeting we had, we were just really starting to decide if we were even going to meet. And that's when he said to me, um, I can remember very clearly he asked how I was doing. I just kind of had a breakdown about being single and everybody's life moving on and me just feeling very stuck and not, and knowing God was hearing me, but for some reason he kept saying no. And that was really hard for me of like, I'm confident he's hearing me. I don't know why he keeps telling me no about what my vocation is. And so Father Anthony asked how I was doing. So I had to tell him that, be honest with him. And then he said to me, I don't know that you're called to marriage. And I responded back very quickly, like, but I've discerned religious life and that's not for me. And that was when he introduced me to the idea of consecrated virginity. And that's really where that discernment began. And one of the things that he did for me that I had not, no one else had been able to do. Many people had opinions about where and that's part of what's overwhelming about discernment is that other people have opinions about your discernment and they're telling you, oh, well, you would make a great mother. Oh, you'd make a great religious sister. And so anytime you talk about discernment, it's almost like everybody else makes it a bigger deal than the smaller steps of discernment are. And he's the one who was able to kind of pinpoint why he didn't think religious life was for me and why he didn't think marriage was for me. It's so nice that you could have a, a, pastor or a shepherd to kind of walk you through that process and friends to bounce ideas off of. I think that's one of the crucial things in there. And there's so much in what you just laid out, but a, a couple of things jumped out to me. One is that discernment is not a giant monolithic, like yes, no moment. It's a series of smaller steps and you need to have the courage and the sort of clarity of mind and vision to see each of those steps and to act on them. Um, I also appreciated what you said about how um, the the father encouraged you to visit a a, uh, a convent. Mm. Uh, you know, what religious orders have you visited? And I think that's another important thing too. I talked with Father Anthony Sharapa last year about discern, discerning the priesthood. And one of the points he made is that when people are discerning the priesthood, what they should do um, if they're serious about it is like enter seminary. I mean, at, at the very least go on a like discernment retreat, but you can enter seminary. Uh, you know, the worst case scenario is like you discern out and then I'm saying worse in quotes, because if you discern out and you're supposed to discern out, that's actually the best case scenario. But you know, the, as far as like time lost, right, you spend a year or so in seminary, you get this wonderful philosophical or theological education. And then you're like, this is not for me. And I'm going to go pursue, um, marriage and family life. Um, and so I think there, there does need to be an, an action involved in the discernment itself. It's not just about like sitting there and thinking, what is for me? Because you have to, you have to try it. Right. And, and by try it, I don't mean like take your vows and then see if it works. I mean, go and like enter into the life of those people, see what it's, see what it's all about. And then you can, you can have more information to make that decision. And I think that's something, especially for young people right now is that it's so important to experience and to interact with. And that's one of the things that was beautiful when I went to Nashville is that they're, because they're so prevalent in the community, the people there know what it's like to be in a religious order. Uh, they have that idea, they have that exposure, but that's like just entering in and exposing yourself, getting to know 
like that, like even engagement, engagement is not your vows. There are, I know many people who were engaged and then realized this is not where God's calling us and they broke off that engagement. And yes, there, each of these steps are, are steps, but they're steps towards the big step. And that I think is what we need to encourage our young people to, to be excited for them when they are seeking that, but to not overwhelm them with that means that's what's for you. God, you felt this calling, so now that's for sure where God's leading you. But more, how do we encourage them and say, yeah, that might be how God wants you to grow in holiness. So let's continue to see if that's where he wants you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I also, I appreciated how um, your story relates the importance of, I think, sort of listening to the clues that God is giving you, right? Uh, you related how you were in, I think, eight weddings, but obviously you were never married. And by the time you discerned your vocation, you had six godchildren already. And so you've been in this sort of, uh, what do they say? Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Yes, situation. I've, had, I've said that many a time. <laughs> and that's, that's, a, that's a challenging place to be. I mean, I, uh, I was married young, and so I didn't really experience that. But I have lots of friends who have, men and women. And it's frustrating to always be looking for Mr. or Mrs. Wright, not finding him or her, and just like wondering when is my time going to come? And you try to be a really supportive friend to all your friends who are getting married and having kids, et cetera. But it, but it gets harder and harder the more that sort of pain grows in you. And that, that comes through in your book very clearly. But I, I think it's really admirable that you had the presence of mind to sort of recognize that despite the pain and wonder if God's trying to tell you something. The fact that you had six godchildren at that point also suggests maybe you have this you have this thing for spiritual motherhood. Maybe that's one way that God can use your charisms in the church. And that's what, so within that discernment process, you know, going back to Father Anthony, is that he was a, the reason he said to me that he didn't think religious life was for me was because of my ability to be invested in families. So I have many uh, amazing big, so I'm one of those people who has both quantity and quality in friends. Um, and the Lord's really given me the grace to invest in the num the great number of people that he's placed in my life. So back in California, my some of my closest friends are the oldest siblings of very large families. So for one of the families, I'm friends with the two oldest that are the oldest of nine. But through my friendship with them, I have been invited in. I spend Christmas night with their family. Their younger sister is one of my confirmandis and I've just have grown in relationship. And so for him, he was saying like, you wouldn't be able to have those types of relationships if you're in a religious order, because in a religious order, your community is the religious order and you do go out from it, but that's your central community where I've been able to invest in my godchildren very uniquely. Um, and that was actually when I through this discernment, that was one of the things that just like really struck my heart very early on was that if this was what God was calling me to, I would be able to be invested in my my nephew and my nieces and in my godchildren in a unique way that I wouldn't be if I had my own kids. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I think you're you're answering it, is how have you been able, able to find community as a celibate woman? Because I think that's one of the hangups for people, men and women, who are discerning non-marriage vocations, right? How can I be truly fulfilled as a celibate person? Um, because, you know, marriage marriage is its own built-in community in that sense. Uh, it's a community of persons, uh, especially when, when kids are added to the mix. And so in that way, you know, the married person is never going to be alone. And there's this inbuilt community and this ability to foster relationships. Um, is that hard as a celibate person um, if not, I mean, how, how have you maybe been, been surprised by how it's not been hard or, or what have been some of the unexpected joys of being celibate and living your charism that way? 
Yeah. So again, this is different for all consecrated virgins uh, because our lives are very different. But for me in particular, I have been immersed in community my entire life, especially my entire Christian life. So even when I came into the church, I had 50 people at my first communion confirmation, half of whom were Catholic, half of whom were not. And so the Lord just has always surrounded me by just incredible, incredible community. Uh, during my discernment, I was surrounded by uh, beautiful families. Like I just have always had this, this gift, which was one of the hard things about it was that I saw amazing, beautiful, holy families that are striving for holiness and trying to get all of their kids, their spouses to heaven. So they have always taken me in. So even during my discernment process, I just had a lot of beautiful families. I've also had back home, I have a couple different priests that have been spiritual fathers who've been that community for me. But the Lord bringing me to Colorado has been such a gift because I have found community amongst other celibates here, which was something I didn't have. So I had priests that were spiritual leaders in my life, but I didn't necessarily have priests that were friends. So there are three other consecrated virgins in Colorado Springs that we get together about once a month. And so that is community. Uh, however, in the celibate vocation, I found more, uh, there's a consecrated virgin up in Denver who's become one of my best friends. And then with her comes a few priests that are about my age as well, who have such a heart for the vocation. So I have definitely have, have created community amongst other celibates, but really my biggest community are families. And so I just have been taken in by families, uh, even just, you know, being a holy apostles, I came, started right before everything shut down with COVID. And I have three families already that have just taken me in, have checked up in on me during the whole thing that I um, was so excited that once we start seeing people again, that I've been able to be with. And so I have found that community within families a lot and being able to invest in them and then also to be fed by them. So, so I have not had any trouble finding community. I do think that the part of the vocation too is that although I will be bride of Christ forever, what that will look like will change drastically throughout my life too. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and I think also one of the nice things about being consecrated virgin in that way is that you can be more flexible in the way that your charism plays out. You are not, uh, you're not, you know, assigned by the bishop to a particular parish, right? Yep. Uh, you are not assigned by the bishop to a particular career um, or, um, you know, job choice. So you could you could teach at a different high school. You could teach a different subject. You could do a totally Leave different teaching job. Teaching all together, which I one day will probably do. And that's what Andrea in Denver is a nurse. And then uh, Tara here in Colorado Springs, she actually works with media. So she creates videos and very, oh, very cool. different styles of life yeah, different very different ways of being in yes, the world yes yeah well i mean you you mentioned holy apostles just for my listeners that's our parish um i've mentioned it before but i don't know if you would have remembered that but so lisa uh goes to our parish holy apostles catholic church in colorado springs and i've seen firsthand how much of a blessing the consecrated virginity can be to the parish i mean you're involved in parish council already and you haven't been in our parish very long uh you like you said are involved with several families and you're your love for families and for nurturing families and helping moms and dads do that is is very evident. So that's super cool. I think it'd be great to see more people embrace this charism, uh, embrace this vocation. Um, so something that you wrote in the book struck me, and that was that there, there's a there's a subheading of one of your chapters, or within one of your chapters that that asks where are you most free, and that was a that was a it's a, a cool a cool question to ask because it always 
I think is like counterintuitive to the modern mind to think that a priest in taking a vow of celibacy and obeying, you know, obeying a bishop and, and vowing obedience, et cetera, um, could be most free or that someone who's married who has said, I will only be married to this person for the rest of my life and I will never ever divorce them period. As long as I shall live that like, that's somehow freeing. But this is, I mean, it's also, this is like a corollary to one of the central insights of the gospel that by being fully alive in Christ, by being a bond servant to Christ, we are actually made most free and God, God redeems our choices um, in that way. And so we're most free to choose the good when we actually, you know, bond ourselves to the good in, in that sense. And so I really appreciated that, um, that passage of your book. I think if you can, can you say a little more about what it means to be most free in the context of being a consecrated virgin? Because you have said, I'm not going to marry. To me, that doesn't sound very free, right? That, seems, that sounds like you're constricting your choice somehow, that you're saying that if, if this guy who really seems like Mr. Wright comes along, you're not going to marry him. And you've, you've, you know, precluded that option from the rest of your life forever. So how is that being free, Lisa? Yeah, so, uh, and when I had written this, you know, I hadn't discerned consecrated virginity yet. So I actually saw it first from a marriage perspective. I saw a couple that I had seen date other people that I loved very much. And when they came together, I saw these little glimpses that I had seen in them just become fully who they were, you know? And it was so beautiful to see like, it, it's, it, it was that the Lord brought you guys together so that who you are could could shine out from, from you, you know? And, um, and so feeling that within the vocation as well. And that's what, so I'd already kind of had this idea of it and what's really amazing. So, you know, again, this is after I wrote the book is at my reception for the consecration, my goddaughter actually asked me, do you feel different? And I was so overwhelmed that whole weekend. I mean, it's just like a wedding, you know, it's so overwhelming, all the little details, all these people are there that love you. And I just looked at her and was like, I don't have an answer for you right now. I'm just so overwhelmed by love, but I will write you a letter next week and tell you. And so I, you know, I was really praying about like, do I feel different? And that next weekend I was at a daily mass and I was kneeling before our Lord. And I was just thinking like, I don't know anything about where my life is going to be. I don't know if I'm going to teach for how long am I going to teach? I don't know if I'm going to live in Colorado for the rest of my life. I don't know anything about my life except for from now and through all of eternity, I'm going to be bride of Christ. And there was something that just, it was like, I can be free to be everything else that it's okay. If, if I'm not a teacher in five years, it's okay. If the Lord calls me to move to a place where I don't know anyone again, that I can have freedom in the fact that I am bride of Christ and that this is something that's certain for us. And I think that the biggest thing with this idea of freedom and that we are in our culture today is that we think having all these options makes us free. And yet the reality is, is that when we have certain things we know, that we're able to be more open in the other things. We're more like that couple. They were able to be more free in the things that, that they had been maybe hiding because they didn't feel comfortable in themselves because now together they knew like, like Brittany knew Joe is here to love me so I can live this out more. Joe could live out his leadership more because Brittany was there to support him and to give him that strength. And I would say that same thing within my vocation. Like I have the, the certainty that Christ is going to be my groom forever and that I can live out everything else knowing that nothing else really matters as much as that. 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. Uh, and not not only does it like make everything else seem inconsequential, but it frames everything else in a brand new light. And it, I, th- I think when you restore restore the central part of your identity to its proper foundations, everything else drops into place. That's beautiful. Uh, you have this quote from St. Alphonsus Liguori that I wanted to read. You, you mentioned this in your book. And uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori, of course, a doctor of the church, one of my favorites, um, this quote is from Uniformity with God's Will. Yes. Which is uh, one of my favorite books. It's a very short read. And there's a uh, plug here. There's a free audiobook of this on the podcast feed that I did a few months ago because it's such a good, a good book and every Catholic should read it. But Saint, uh, the great saint says, Above all, let us bend all our energies to serve God in the way he wishes. This remark is made so that we may avoid the mistake of him who wastes his time in idle daydreaming. Hence, we should dismiss them summarily and rouse ourselves to serve God only in that way which he has marked out for us to do. Doing his holy will, we shall certainly become holy in those surroundings in which he has placed us. And I think the, the important part of this quote um, is that he's talking about how God has marked out something for us to do. And that's what discerning vocation is ultimately all about, right? What has God marked out for me? Um, and you'll be most free in doing that because the service of God is freedom. That's the paradox at the heart of the gospel. Um, Christ does deliver us from bondage to sin, and he offers us a better way. And we're only going to find that way if we if we seek out the path that God has for us, that he has marked out for us. Um, so I think it's really cool that you did that uh, as a consecrated version. Do you have um, any advice for people who are on a similar discernment path, not necessarily to consecrated virginity, but just to, you know, what does God want me to do? Yeah. So, I mean, I know you've written a book on this, so yes. that that's like, you know, I'm holding the advice in that sense, but, uh, you know, if you had two minutes to like talk through, talk, you know, convey something to those people, what would you say? Yeah. So the first thing is that expose yourself to as many vocations as you can to as many people living out those vocations, um, so that you have an understanding of what those vocations, because the reality is, is that every vocation is beautiful and hard. And that you need to understand the beauty and the suffering that comes along with it. Father uh, Cantola Mesa, in his book on virginity, he talks about that. You can't understand the beauty of one vocation without seeing the suffering in the other. And you can't understand the suffering without understanding the beauty in the other. And so I would say expose yourself to as many vocations as possible. Also get a spiritual director at all possible, which I know is unfortunately hard right now. Not everyone can find a spiritual director, but really having a spiritual director to walk you through uh, your own prayer discernment is really important and really, especially if you're going to be going into a religious life or uh, the priesthood or into a consecrated life that you need to have someone who is really helping you to see, is this what God's saying to you or not? Um, and then I would say being open to talking to people about it and not being overwhelmed by their responses to you. And I really think that was a big part for me was the not being overwhelmed when people got overly excited or were kind of dismissive of what I felt like God was saying to me. Right. That makes sense. I'll also add that it is hard to find a spiritual director, but it doesn't need to be a priest. Um, I think if you're discerning the priesthood, it should probably be a priest, right? So they can talk to you about that. If you're discerning religious life, it probably would be a good idea for it to to be a priest as well, but your spiritual director does not need to be a priest. Um, and, and, uh, I would encourage you to find someone who, uh, is holy. I mean, you can go to your priest maybe for recommendations, right? If you go to your, your parish priest and say, I'm looking for spiritual direction, they might be able to give you spiritual direction themselves or say, you know, I can't personally, I don't have the bandwidth to take you on as a, as a directee, but, um, there's this man or this woman who is very holy. Uh, I know them well, they're very experienced. They, they've done this before, et cetera. Um, and so that might be a good starting point. Yes. 
I have one question for you. I was curious. So I've seen the highlights video of your consecration. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, you mentioned that when you were when you had your first communion, you had lots of non-Catholics there. Did you have non-Catholics at your consecration? Oh, yes, absolutely. So my entire family was there, which they're non-Catholics, non-Christian. Uh, also, a lot of my coworkers came. So it was actually funny because one of the, the guests that was there, who I actually... He, family who threw my reception, he knew them better. And he's a devout Catholic working up in Denver. And so he came down and he asked me about working in public school. And I was like, well, that whole table over there are my coworkers. So they're That's obviously so cool. here yeah. supporting me. So within that table, some of them are Catholic. Um, some of them are Protestant. And so yes, I had a lot of not Catholics. And actually my HR, uh, the people from the HR administration building came and one of them is not Catholic. And she wrote me this beautiful email the next day of how, because you let you lay before the altar yep. and surrender yourself, uh, which most beautiful part of the entire liturgy for me. Um, she said that that moment she remembered her need to surrender her life to God. And that's that, so that, cool. Yeah. So it was really beautiful. Well, you, you jumped ahead then. Cause I was going to ask what was the reaction because I was watching this and it is, it's very, it's very different. I, I mean, to, to someone who is not Catholic, let alone someone who probably is Catholic and doesn't know about this or hasn't seen it before. It, it's very different. I mean, it has a lot of these sort of external marks of a wedding. Uh, you even wear a, a dress that looks kind of bridal. Um, and you had a reception afterward and everything, but there, there's no, there's no visible groom, right? I mean, you're, it's in, in, a, in some ways it's a, it's a recognition of, or it's a sort of emulation of a wedding ceremony because you are the bride of Christ, but there's no visible groom, right? So there's not like a cake cutting with the groom standing there with you, et cetera. So it looks very different. And then there are these marks in the ceremony that, are just downright different, right? Like you said, prostrating yourself in front of the altar. And like, when you say prostrate, I mean, like you're laying flat on the floor in the cruciform position, offering yourself to Jesus. And that's just like you'd see in the, in the ordination, right? As well, the priests do, um, or, or bishops consecrating, um, some really cool stuff. So it's, it's great that you had a positive response that that was that even that, you know, the, the right itself was a witness to um, to Christ in that way. So my uncle actually, so my uncle is from LA and it's as LA as you can get like, and they have, a, have friends that are Catholic. And so he made this, he's like, we, they had no idea. His friends had no idea what the vocation was. And so my uncle had never seen anything like this. And so for him, it was really beautiful. So they, him and my aunt had done a ton of research on what consecrated Virginia was. Like they didn't even believe it was a thing. You know, it's still sometimes people are like, that's not even a thing. Um, and so to see him and he had never even experienced because, you know, in LA you have that one kid, two kids, you know, idea. He had never seen families like this. So wow. he was just in awe of all of it. And if you listen to the actual consecration video, the right footage, it is so loud because there are so many kids. And so watching him experience it was so beautiful as well. Like, you know, he hasn't had any encounter with priest before and um, the bishop was at the reception and just getting to experience that was just such an amazing thing to hear him talk about the beauty of it. And that's what uh, the beauty and that's something my sister said later was about that, like the, the beauty of it. So she couldn't identify the, the goodness in it, but she could look at it and say like, that was beautiful, you know, and that was really remarkable too. That's so cool. Wow. So. Nice. Um, well that I think about wraps it up. I was going to ask you though, Lisa, for people who are interested in consecrated virginity, uh, do you have any resources that you'd recommend to them? I, I know there's not a whole lot out there, I think. There's right? not. So yeah, there's still a lot of, there's a lot more than there was when I first started discerning. So reaching out 
if you look up consecrated um, virgins association so if pretty much if you google it right now you're gonna come upon stuff that because there have been a lot more articles and stuff written that i think really exemplify that but there is the consecratedvirgins.org and so that's really kind of where you can get the the bulk of of information so they have this massive pamphlet that's a ton of it's very overwhelming but that was what i went through that first year during my discernment until i really felt called to know that this is what god wanted from me so that's where i would start really consecratedvirgins.org yes okay sounds good pretty, i'm pretty we'll, sure we'll double check <laughs> if, if not i'll put a correction in the show notes well lisa thanks so much for joining me today i'm not going to put your email on blast here but i will offer to any listeners who are interested in in learning more about lisa's discernment process or have questions about the life of a consecrated virgin go ahead and email me zach z-a-c at creedalcatholic.com and I will put you in touch with Lisa. But Lisa, thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate the time. And thank you so much for your ministry um, for Christ and his church as a consecrated version. It's a really cool thing to see and it's inspiring. And I hope that more people follow you in this path that you have discerned that Christ has called you to. Mm-hmm.